Welcome to Let's Talk Trade Season 3, Episode 3, where we continue to unpack the recent trade disruptions by tracing the journey of goods along global supply chains. I'm Jessica Hermosa, Communications Officer at the WTO. In this episode, we will focus on transport and logistics after having heard from manufacturers in the previous episode. Manufacturers told us how they reshuffled their assembly lines, realigned their labor force, and hurdled new government regulations related to COVID-19 and geopolitical issues. Whether by air, road, or sea, we will hear in this episode how all these trade channels had their share of disruptions and what key actors, including the WTO, are doing to brace for further disturbances ahead. So, let's talk trade! Around 90% of global merchandise is carried by sea. The image of the ever-given container ship blocking the Suez Canal in early 2020 provided a peek into how important seaborne trade is. There's therefore no better place to start than the shipping industry. We are joined by a key industry player with important insights on shipping and more and more in other parts of the logistics chain. Please introduce yourself. My name is Lars Michael Jensen. I am head of our um, ocean uh, global network um, with Maersk, who is um, a global um, container logistics provider. To get things started, it's best to understand the principle behind smooth shipping flows. Here's the secret. To run an efficient logistics operation, you need to have a constant flow in and out of the terminals because the container terminals, that's where the ocean meets the land side. That's where the ship meets the rail and the trucks. And normally you have a very consistent flow. Boxes are being discharged and within four or five days, all the boxes are, most of the boxes at least, are out of the terminal on a, on a rail wagon or on a truck onto a distribution warehouse and so on. So, so if you don't have that constant flow through the terminal, the congestion in the terminal itself increases. I'd like to look back at the earlier stages of the supply chain crisis to better appreciate how unprecedented the situation was. Can you paint a picture of the congestion? There's probably two two parts of this here. One is that we've seen uh, after the you can say after the super slowdown in the second quarter of twenty uh, when the first COVID wave came, then there was a change in consumer patterns around the world, which meant that. You can say shipments of consumer goods all of a sudden rose very quickly, particularly into the U.S., uh, but also to some degree uh, into Europe. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin has been that because of COVID, um, there has been an impact on the available workforce. And it's the available workforce on the land side, on the terminals, in the distribution warehouses, in the trucking companies, and so on. Um, and obviously, we've also had COVID cases on board the ships. And really how you need to look at this here is that before we had a super optimized supply chain, the terminal anywhere in the world, they kind of like had the agreement with the shipping line that one is coming Tuesday morning at 8, finish Wednesday at 10, then the next one comes at 11, finishes at 8 o'clock in the evening, and the next come at 9. And that's when you have a normal operation, where then all of a sudden that you're missing a large part of your workforce. Then the ship that was supposed to finish at 9, you know, it only finishes at maybe four o'clock in the afternoon. 
And therefore, it is late until the next port, as well as the ship that was supposed to go alongside is delayed. So you kind of like get those delays all along. I normally compare it with um, the Circle Line, which is one of the tube lines in London. It basically keeps on going round in a circle. It never stops. It doesn't reset. Some of the other lines of the tube in London, like the District Line or something, they get to Upminster or wherever they end today. And then they park there for a couple of hours or some time, and then they return. Circle Line always keep turning. And there's always people getting on and off. And eventually, if you are delayed at every station, you know, you're going you're gonna to miss one of your circles. And that's exactly what's happening on container, uh, on container shipments. And when we have then seen that you get delays of like two or three days in many ports, then all of a sudden, when you were supposed to be back for your next trip out of Asia, the, con- or the container ships are not back. And then there is a missed sailing. We have all gotten so used to things working like a clockwork, but it only worked like the clockwork when everything was without, um, you can say, uh, restrictions. We've probably been used over the years to optimize it down to the last move of the goods of the package. But we all of us need to look at, I would say, building in more buffers in these supply chains. What kind of government support or international cooperation would be needed to make possible these buffers for supply chain resilience? I'll take us back again here to the ship that in some countries, when there was a positive case, you were pragmatic and you dealt with it. In others, as I said, the ship had to wait. And then maybe also, you know, say faster customs regulations and, uh, and, and so on in order to get in and out of the terminals faster. And to round out this conversation, how did Maersk address the bottlenecks so far and what did success look like? We've been out trying to secure two more ships. We have bought extra containers, but I think the, the most important thing that we've done is that we have been in constant dialogue with our customers to, to try to work out that, uh, you know, what do we do? So if a customer has 100 boxes that need to ship, maybe 50 of those are super important. So we engage with the customer telling them there is a risk and they're saying, whatever you do, we understand, but these 50 boxes need to go. Sometimes we've had to tell customers some not so nice news about the challenges, but what we found is that they actually appreciate to be told the bad news rather than not be told anything and then just be caught by surprise. Because the worst thing that a lot of these consumer goods importers, the worst thing or a worse thing compared to bad news is empty shelves. Now let's hear how seaports, where water meets land, deal with the container ships and some of the challenges they face to keep up with surges in seaborne trade. Clemens Cheng of port operator Hutchison Ports summed it up at the Global Supply Chains Forum held at the WTO in March. I think for many years, thanks to containerization, the global supply chain has been working well. Cargo moving smoothly around the world in a just-in-time fashion. So this global supply chain has been well-balanced for a long period of time, and the cost of transportation was relatively inexpensive. And to continue the drive for efficiency, I think our shipping lines colleagues have started to build very, very big ships in order to get economy of scale. These big ships, although can be ordered and delivered in a couple of years, but the land size supply chain and the infrastructure to support it, including ports, takes years to develop. And just to give you an example, I think when with the deployment of these big ships, the number of port cores reduces because you don't have the ports to actually be able to handle them. The core size is increased. 
And one of our ports recently has actually handled a ship, the total exchange of containers, more than 27,000. If you line them up one after the other, it will be something like 160 kilometers long. So roughly the distance from Brussels to Rotterdam. So if you imagine having that number of boxes being dumped in your yard by one single voyage, how can the hinterland supports have cleared quickly? Indeed a tall order. Next, get ready for shore. We're moving to the land side of the logistics chain. My name is Matthias Mietke from IRU, the World Road Transport Organization. I'm IRU's Director of Advocacy, and we're the voice and represent over three and a half million transport companies both in um, goods transport, but also passenger transport worldwide. The journey obviously always starts and ends with a truck. Is the container terminal where all the troubles start? It's one of the bottlenecks and it's a serious one, of course, because if harbors are, are blocked and you know ships are unable to basically unload, a truck is unable to take the load and move it further. And in some cases, you of course have a shortage of vehicles and in other cases, you simply don't have enough vehicles because the containers can't be moved out of the harbor. So there is a lot of backlog from the, again, um, high and uh, dramatic increase in demand in very short time, and it will be better over time. I think it's really important to emphasize the human impact of the supply chain crisis. Can you please tell us, at the height of the crisis, what the drivers were experiencing? We are running our annual driver shortage surveys and We've seen driver shortages of well over 20%, in some cases even more. And what that means is that a fleet of a transport operator would then basically stand still. If we talk about 20 or 30%, you say a quarter or, or a third of the fleet is not moving because there are no drivers. So ultimately, it is a massive supply chain disruption on top of the fuel prices. And all this together, Jessica, is what we call the perfect storm. It's just getting worse. Can you tell me more about the shortage in workers? Is that 20% globally? And around what time period did we see this shortage? It's globally. And if you look more closely to different countries, again, in some countries it's higher and in other countries it's lower. But just to give you a couple of figures from the top of my head, in Europe, you, for example, lack about 300,000 drivers. The US lacks 100,000 drivers. The UK lacks 100,000 drivers. Mexico, another 30,000, and it continues. So there is a massive uh, shortage of drivers. Indeed, we've heard about or read about long numbers of days where these drivers were stranded or without proper conditions to rest. Can you tell us a little more about that? What is really lacking is a good infrastructure, which provides showers, toilets. People can go and get something to eat, for example, so the basics, or even a Wi-Fi connection, what we all take so for granted. I could mention Chile, Argentina, with 5,000 trucks basically um, locked into the border and for two weeks, actually. yeah. Where do they go? How do they shower? Well, they take a bucket of water. That's what they do. So there is nothing, really. 80% of global supply chains, um, when you look at road transport only, depend on subcontracting and small and medium-sized enterprises. Our industry um, is, roughly speaking, a $3 trillion. $3,000 billion strong industry in terms of turnover. In the first year of the pandemic, we've lost one third of the turnover. In the second year, still $500 billion. So you talk about during the pandemic, half of the annual revenue of our entire industry worldwide. Some SMEs will not be able to recover and they go bankrupt and go out of the market. Larger companies don't see it so quickly today. 
this year, for the first time, actually companies are not making any revenue. They are losing money. And that means companies go out of business. And that's the biggest threat for global supply chains. Matthias also discussed the repercussions from the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The Ukraine crisis will overtake or has overtaken COVID already as the biggest threat to global supply chains and certain products. You can see that already, the discussion on the grain and how the prices go up, but more prominently, what happens at the filling station. So obviously, we're very, very fuel dependent. And um, that means citizens and businesses are also dependent on, on how we do things, because if we pay more, everyone else will have to pay more in the end. We need an urgent call for fuel price action to avert the economic crisis. We've seen even before the Ukraine crisis, over the past 12 months, an increase of over 30% of fuel price. And that obviously is an issue that has to be looked at. Okay, can you tell us how much percent fuel cost makes up in maybe the price of a product or in the total transactions? It's generally speaking one third. So you, you really have um, in the total cost of ownership, one third related to the vehicle, the fuel. Um, then of course, another third related to the driver, the salaries. So if you have an issue on um, anything that affects fuel price, like it does at, at the moment, you, you imminently have a discussion on the supply chain Again, knowing that road transport is involved in the entire supply chain at some point, and sometimes also for the entirety of its journey. What lessons have we learned from COVID restrictions and bottlenecks there that could be helpful in this case to make sure that uh, truckers are safe and that we avoid the same problems from before? It's very simple, Jessica. It's coordination at uh, borders. The problem has been that governments are not listening and they still don't. So no, at the UN, we had a debate and, and there was one government representative asking, is industry consulted enough? And we said, yes, but we're not listened to enough. You know what I mean? And the situation at borders continues to be a main bottleneck. Thank you, Matthias. I am now joined by a WTO colleague who knows a lot about streamlining and facilitating border procedures. Hi, my name is Nora Neufeld, and I am dealing with trade facilitation and the trade facilitation agreement in particular in the WTO. Thanks for joining us, Nora. We've heard Maersk and the International Road Transport Union point to several bottlenecks. So we've heard about varying COVID-19 restrictions that leads to delays and stranding of transport workers. We've heard about sudden influx in the volumes of goods trade. Are these the same bottlenecks your section has observed over the past two years? Yes, we did receive reports about those problems, as well as on other bottlenecks. At the outset of the pandemic, several of our members were affected by export restrictions, especially relating to items such as personal protective equipment, face masks, eye protection, gloves, as well as pharmaceutical and medical products. Now. Most of those measures were only of a temporary nature and they were gradually phased out after a few months, but they were soon followed by other challenges such as COVID-related restrictions that affected border clearance and onward distribution of goods. Now, what proved to be quite toxic was the combination of congested ports on the one hand, which 
We're faced with a sudden surge in incoming goods due to changing consumer patterns as everybody was getting on the internet ordering things. And an equally sudden drop in available personnel, both at ports and with respect to trucks and, and drivers, many of which were becoming either sick or uh, getting quarantined. And that led to shipping costs going through the roof, which uh, caused considerable problems for traders around the globe, as well as consumers, which often had to pick up the tap in the form of delays and higher costs. Now, of all of these problems, personally, I consider shipping disruptions to be especially problematic since the vast majority of, of all traded goods are carried by sea, which means that international trade heavily relies on a properly functioning maritime supply chain. And those problems are more pronounced for developing countries that are landlocked or distant from production hubs due to their geographic and economic situation. Right. And we've heard Maersk describe it as a global traffic jam. They want to get goods in and out of the terminals faster. How can we play a role at the WTO? The trade facilitation agreement contains a number of provisions that are helpful in this regard because they do contribute to maintaining or, as the case may be, restoring um, efficient global value chains. Now, of course, the agreement had not been negotiated to address a global pandemic, but many of its measures, such as those on paperless documentation, electronic payments, uh, or single window data submission, have the effect of minimizing human-to-human interaction and of promoting more contactless trade, both of which are key elements of a, what I consider to be a su- successful strategy to overcome the kinds of obstacles we currently see in cross-border trade. Speaking of overcoming obstacles, now's a good time to introduce a success story in logistics, the delivery of vaccines around the globe, even at the height of the pandemic. Let's hear from the express delivery industry. I'm Carlos Grau. I'm the Director General of the Global Express Association. The Global Express Association is is a trade association that represents the three leading express delivery carriers, DHL Express, FedEx Express, and UPS. Express delivery could perhaps best be described as a conveyor belt, uh, a worldwide conveyor belt, particularly fast and particularly secure, uh, that carries documents and goods domestically and across borders every day. Our members operate in 220 countries and territories, so really worldwide. And what we do is connect virtually any doorstep on the planet to any other doorstep on the planet, and we take goods or documents from one place and and deliver it at the other in a time-definite way. We've heard about congestions, but we've also heard about some breakthroughs, particularly with regard to delivering vaccines. Can you tell us about this success story? Yes, with pleasure, actually, because we are very proud of the role we've played in in vaccine distribution. Uh, In fact, uh, by now, I could say that our members have delivered billions of vaccines worldwide successfully. uh, And as you know, some of those vaccines have to be carried in very precise temperature-controlled conditions. So... It is a a complicated operation, but uh, we started planning for that, I'd say, as early as September 2020, before the vaccines were even approved. 
foreseeing uh, the need for a global operation. We reminded authorities that uh, vaccines should be considered an essential item, that they should be exempt from any import or export restrictions, that in order to speed up the crossing of the border, they should be exempt from import duties and taxes. And to the extent possible, if all border authorities could coordinate with each other and accept advanced electronic information, even create a, a single window for the importation of, of vaccines, this would help tremendously. And I must say that that call was heard. There was uh, excellent cooperation with the authorities and this operation has been running very smoothly. Can you tell us what lesson there is to be learned from the global delivery of vaccines? The big lesson here is that your trade facilitation agreement works. Uh, and the pandemic, I would not shy from saying that the pandemic has been a proof of concept for the trade facilitation agreement. Where countries had border procedures that were closer to the standards in the agreement, they suffered fewer disruptions, their supply chains worked better. And the contrary also is true. You know, countries that had still basically paper-based procedures suffered more from disruptions. In some cases, it, it was as simple as, you know, customs officers not being able to go to their post at an airport or, or a seaport, um, in our case, an airport, and then not being able to clear those shipments because of everything is paper-based, and if it's paper-based, you cannot work from home. Now, the good thing here is that if at the beginning of the pandemic, say around March, April 2020, we saw what I would qualify almost as a breakdown of, of border procedures. So if in April you saw lots of shipments being held because border traditional border procedures were breaking down, as a consequence of the pandemic, we saw border authorities adapt very, very quickly to the situation and accept uh, things such as electronic copies or scanned copies of physical documents, whereas before they would require a physical document or an original signature. We saw um, customs authorities performing remote checks uh, with webcams, uh, and that suddenly resulted in very fast clearance at the border. So uh, that's the lesson, you know, it, it, it can be done. And where there is a will, there is a way. The trade facilitation agreement of the World Trade Organization has the standards. This has proved that these standards work. So let's implement them. Our message is, if countries can do that for vaccines, why can't they do that for everything else? Back to Nora. Can you speak about the importance of trade facilitation for resilience for supply chains? The first thing I would say is never assume that operations are shielded from disruptions, even if they have been stable for quite some time. I think we rather have to expect the unexpected, never rest on our laurels and, and never take past achievements for granted. I also think it's very important to always be ready to improve the, the current status quo and to be open with respect to how this can be achieved. And as far as specific measures are concerned, I personally think that initiatives aimed at creating more digital contactless trade, as we do find in the, in the TFA, are a very important part of efforts to enhance supply chain resilience. At the 
big picture level, um, I think we have seen that global problems require global solutions. Um, the COVID pandemic certainly triggered problems of a hitherto unknown scale, but it also presents a unique opportunity, I believe, in the sense that we now have the chance to improve the functioning of global supply chains, and we do have the tools at our disposal to do it. So I think there's no excuse not to engage in the exercise, and I believe the WTO certainly stands ready to do its bit, um, and we all look forward to working with our partners to enhance supply chain resilience and accelerate post-COVID recovery. Thank you so much. Thanks for highlighting the need for global solutions, and I won't keep you away from your desk uh, to chase those global solutions. Thank you, Nora. Thanks, Jessica. I hope you enjoyed listening to the transport and logistics point of view and gain a better understanding of global supply chains and how to build more resilience into the system. In the next episode, we are heading to another link in the chain, the consumers. How much more are we shopping when we are stuck at home? Consumers have become more choosy. Consumers have shifted to more or less online and more customized approaches. We saw the tremendous increase in online shopping because you know consumers didn't have alternatives. The solution that I'm seeing and that is most likely to play out is the destruction of demand. Is, is people stopping to buy goods because inflation is so high? See you again next time on Let's Talk Trade.